through receiving communion together when you came in you should have been given the element for communion if not you can raise up your hand and our ushers will bring you the communion elements we're going to continue to worship because that's what communion is it's a remembrance it's a celebration it's a declaration of who Jesus is and what that means to us. In our church, anybody can receive communion with us. All we ask that you do is that you have a relationship with Jesus. That you've asked him into, be your, into your life to be your Lord and your Savior, then you're free to, to celebrate communion with us. The Apostle Paul, writing about communion, wrote this. Said, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We'll stop right there. Take the bread off the top of your cup. Hold it in your hand. Jesus said, this is my body. He was giving us for now 2,000 years a way to know that we are connected with him, to know that he is present with us always. There's a a thousand, 10,000 different ways Jesus could have instituted as a way to help us remember who he is and what he's done but he took bread and he started this way he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me and he's he's saying this he's saying to remember his presence is with us right now and that not only here but in a moment we're going to eat the bread and it becomes part of us. There's no separation. There's no that God is near. No God is here. Everywhere. He fills us with his reality and his presence. And for some of you today coming in here, you may feel like, and feelings are real. Doesn't mean that feelings are right. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. But you might feel like God is not near. Jesus wanted to remind you that he said, this is my body, that I'm right here with you right now in this moment. That means he's here for you to call on. He's here for you to worship. He's here for you to lean on. He's here for you to say, God, I don't have the answers, but you do. He's here for you to say, God, I need wisdom, and it needs to come from you. He's saying, God, I need your presence in my life. Lord Jesus, as we hold this wafer in our hands, I ask you on behalf of every person in this congregation today 
that's partaking in communion. That for every one of us in this room, you would in this moment remind us and overwhelm us with the truth. A truth that overrides feelings. A truth that lines up with who you are. The truth of the fact that you are with us in all your presence, in all your power, in all your reality in this moment. God, do that for us today. We need you sometimes, Lord, all the time to break through all the pain and all the hurt all the confusion and remind us again that you have never left us you never will leave us and you are here so let's celebrate that truth by partaking of the bread together this morning the apostle Paul went on to say In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So as often as you eat this bread or drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man, a person, must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus, again, chose an element that would remind us of the truth. You just, just hold the cup and look at it for a second. I mean, it on purpose looks like blood. In, for us, it's grape juice. Oftentimes people use wine. But it's intentionally looks like blood. Because Jesus said, this is my blood. This is the, the new covenant in my blood. And Jesus is reminding us of what he has done for us. Jesus didn't just preach some nice little sermons and, and live a good life. Jesus gave his life for you and me. Jesus shed his blood, all of it, on the cross. When the soldier took the spear and stabbed him in the side, when he had died, as his blood and water flowed, it was he was he was dead and he poured it all out for humanity. Reminds us that there's no limits to what God will do to reach his people. No matter how far you think you can run or how you can hide, and we've all done it. Jesus is here. And he reaches out and he gives us all to reach us. And then he calls us to reach back to him and embrace him. So he says, do this. He says, he says, you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood. He says, make it about me. I'm all in for you. You be an all in for me. We're doing this in remembrance of him and who he is right now. But also, it's his remembrance until he comes. Jesus is completely alive and well, and there's a day coming, and we don't know it could be today when he's going to come back. 
He's going to set everything right. And in light of that, what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church was let a person examine himself before he, as he's eating and drinking, examine himself. What are we looking at? We examine ourselves. We're looking, if we know the Lord, we're, we're looking at our lives and saying, do I really, am I really walking with Jesus in the manner that I know he wants me to? I'm walking in the reality that Jesus is in this moment with me. Am I really walking in a manner that I know is pleasing to him? And the reason we do communion often, the reason that Jesus suggested we do it often, and the Apostle Paul taught that we do it often, is so that we constantly ask that question, am I living in step with the Lord? And if we're not, that's between you and the Lord. If you're not, you have another opportunity to come back so you don't stray too far. He's saying, I'm here with my arms wide open. Come back to me. Don't go down that path. I have a better way. The blood reminds us of that as we examine ourselves. The blood reminds that he went all out. And here's one thing I know is he went all out for you and me. There may be needs in your life right now that no man, no doctor, no person can fix. Jesus is reminding us that he goes all out for us and that this is the time to say, Jesus, I need you to do what no one else can do in my life. You're dividing him in to do what only he can do. So take the top, if you haven't already, and peel that back. Jesus, you said this is the cup in the of it, this. This cup is the new covenant in your blood. A new covenant where it's not about the law anymore. It's not about keeping rules. It's about understanding that you are the sacrifice. We don't need sheeps and goats to be sacrificed, doves. You gave it all. And you said you'll, you'll write your word on our heart when we're with you. So Jesus, as we take the cup, would you just remind us of your strength and your power and your grace? that you're all in for us and we're all in for you. Let's partake together. Lord, we're so grateful, so grateful for your kindness to us, so grateful for your presence with us. And Lord, it is our prayer that every person in this place today, because they chose to gather together for you, that Lord, as we are reminded of, of who you are, that it would be more than just something in our mind, that literally in our experience as we've received communion together, we will experience fresh and anew your goodness, your grace, your power, and your strength in our lives. So thank you for giving it all for each and every one of us. We thank you in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Isn't it good just to come together and worship the Lord, celebrate his goodness? Isn't it? Nothing better on on planet Earth.
that we can do to be together. And it's as the body of Christ, when we come together, it's wonderful to worship like this. And, and because it's on so many of our minds, it was so wonderful to worship this week as we celebrated Gary's life. Celebrated with Debbie, cried and laughed, and it was so wonderful. And church family, thank you for being so wonderful, being so kind and so supportive. You know, somebody was teasing with me during the funeral, Debbie, because I've been gone. You know, we Suzanne and I were gone, and we came back early, but they had been still been gone for three and a half weeks. And and uh, they said, "Oh, are you new to this church?" And I said, yes. And I said, well, what kind of church is this? And they said, oh, we're people who care. Um, because that's our motto, we're people who care. And you guys proved it. Also said, we give our first and our best. And I said, said hey, I told our staff, it's working. We're, the things that we stand for, um, our people know. But, um, but that's true. You guys, you guys are people who care. And um, I'm so grateful to be part of this church family. Can I tell you a little secret? Oh, I shouldn't say it. We're live streamed. Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. If you want to know later, ask me. I'll tell you. I was just, it was basically a comparison of saying how awesome you guys are. Um, so anyways, moving on. Hey, if you're with us for the first time today or maybe the second time, we're glad that you're here. We don't think it's an accident that you're here. And um, we hope you've enjoyed already the goodness of the people of God, this wonderful church family, the presence of God as we've been worshiping um, through worship and also songs and also through communion. And we're going to ask you if you would like to, you don't have to do this, if you want us to know who you are, um, there's a couple ways you can do that. Um, first of all, there's a QR code on the back of the seat in front of you. You can just hover over that with your phone. There's also, it's also up here. Hover over that with your phone. It'll take you to our church center app, and you can then go to the visitor section and uh, let us know who you are. And what will happen if you do that is we'll let you, we won't bombard you with stuff. We'll simply let you know weekly just kind of a, of what's going on in our church. And that way you can see who we are, what we're about, the various many different things we're doing. And um, if you say, I don't like to use my phone, also there's a card in front of you called the Guest Connection Card. You can fill that out later in the service, either either whether you do it that way or with a card. When you walk out of the sanctuary when we're done, just off on the left side, when you get out, there's an area called the follow area. There's a table, some gift, a gift bag there for you, and you can leave your card, and we can follow up on you. Also, as our church family, you know that those cards are also used for prayer requests. And so if you have prayer requests, write them on the back side of the card and drop them in the box that's out on the connection area. And we as a staff get together every single week and pray for every single request. You know that we pray for you all the time? This church staff, we gather all the time. Somebody just told me something amazing that they were told that as a church, the staff was told they were not allowed to pray at church. They had to pray in their own time. And I'm like, I'm so glad we all gather together and we pray right? It's what we do. We love to pray for you. We've, we count it a high and holy privilege to pray for you. Hey, our kids, eight grades one through five, if you're here, you can pop on up and go out that way, out to the back, and you can join our, our uh, leaders back there for, for PV Kids. You're going to have a great time. Go have an awesome time and learn a lot, right? Don't you love our kids? Amen. Give them a hand. And I love all of, our, all of our workers who work with all of our kids, not only one through five, but all of our nursery and toddler and preschool. And those rooms are packed with little kids. So many of you serve in there, and it's such a wonderful way to serve Jesus.
I want to invite our ushers to come this morning, receive our tithes and offerings. And what do, us, what do we give? Our first and our best. We give the first of our lives and our, and our energies, and we give the first of our time, and we give the first of our, of our finances back to the Lord. He said, I'll, I'll give it to you, but you give your first. He says a tithe, give a tithe back to me. But not only the tithe, we also do our kingdom builders, which is um, tithes are for the support of the church. Kingdom builders spreads the gospel across the street and around the world, and you guys are phenomenally the most generous people I've ever met in my life. And so why don't you guys come on down. Jesus, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your generosity toward us. Lord, we of all people on planet earth are literally most blessed. And we have so much. And thank you that we get the privilege of worshiping you now with our tithes and our offerings for the glory of God. Amen. We're going to be doing something in a, in a moment, uh, in a couple of minutes, about 10 minutes, um, that is a little different. We have a, um, in a minute, we're going to introduce a missionary that's with us for a 10-minute window, just going to talk about what she's, where she's going and what she's doing. But at the end of that, we'll receive a separate offering. We rarely do a separate offering, but we'll do, receive a separate missions offering that will go just to Abigail to get her to North Africa. And you'll hear more about that in a minute. A couple things I want to make you aware of in case you haven't been, haven't been paying attention or haven't heard. We've been, our annual business meeting is coming up on March 3rd. So the way it works here, annual business meeting, everybody's welcome. You do not need to be a member to come. Everybody's welcome. Members get to vote. And um, the reason I'm bringing it up in particular this year, in addition to just letting you know, we will have a potluck immediately after. So bring your best dish that you can make. Your favorite thing that you like to eat, just bring enough for you and some more to share um, with some more people. But that'll be after the annual meeting. But at the annual meeting, we have um, one very significant point of business to take care of this year. And there is a resolution for that that is available after church. I'm giving it to you after church so that you don't read it now during church. Available out at the, at the information area. The resolution is out there after church. So you can pick it up. We'll make those available the next couple of weeks going, leading up to our annual meeting. Because some of you may have some questions about it. We want everybody to be informed before we go into the annual meeting. You'll see what it is when you get it. I'm not even going to tell you what it is now. Otherwise you'll be thinking about it during church, but it's all good, and um, so um, pick one of those up if you so desire after church, and then we'll be, um, that'll be the main point of business at our annual meeting, in addition to the, just the stuff we do every single year. One more thing to tell you about before I introduce Abigail, on Friday, March 1st, so this is coming up in a few weeks, we have our next um, Souls for Jesus event, we don't. Forged. Oh, there's two different things on here. Forged is that day. March 1st is Forged. I'm sorry to put as one announcement. And so Forged is our marriage ministry. It's awesome, Josh. I'm sorry. Messed up the date of announcement. So Forged is this incredible marriage ministry we have here. You come together every two months, have a great night designed for you. There's child care available for free or donation you can do to help the youth go to camps um, if you want to watch your kids. But then, and you'll get some questions you get to do, um, go out and spend some time together. Then there's Every single, those two months periods, information for building your marriage that's available for you that you can participate in for the next two months until you come in together, gather together again. So that's coming up. Don't miss it. Also, March 2nd is Souls for Jesus, an, an event down. You guys, a lot of you have been to one of those events before. It's called SOS uh, event, which is something with doing something with the shoes again as they're getting ready to go to Africa 
And um, did I hear somebody say something? No. Okay. Um, so that is coming up. You want to be at that. There's a sign up for that in a church center app. Um, and it's a great event. We're going to be continuing through the book of Colossians. I told you early on what we're doing is mowing the lawn, right? Verse by verse, so you can't skip some. Uh, I don't know about you, but my neighbor, he mows really, really slow, right? Like he's just walking along. You could take a value to him to walk slow when he's mowing, you know? I'm almost at a jog, right? I'm almost at a jog. We're going to be a little bit more like a jog today than we are at a, at a, a slow because we have some some passages to cover, but I am a firm believer that as we methodically go through the Word of God, He teaches us really practical things in our everyday life, right? Practical things on how to live, practical things on how to go through difficult times, just practical things on what Jesus wants for us. For Paul, this book of the Bible, particularly to this little church in central Turkey, uh, was his desire to make sure they would put Jesus first to make sure that they did not fall away or stop following Jesus. And he was particularly nervous about other teachings that were coming into the church. When Jesus wrote, or when Peter wrote, when Paul wrote his letters, when Paul wrote his letters, it was always for a purpose. Sometimes it was just to encourage, but often it was to teach or because he had some concerns. And so today we see he had some concerns And we'll be going through the verses verse by verse as we go through it a little at a time. But let's pray and ask the Lord to guide us. Lord, in, uh, I don't know, the 15 verses we're going through today, give us wisdom. Give us something to live by. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been in enough small groups and done enough icebreakers uh, to know this game called Two Truths and a Lie. Has anybody ever played Two Truths and a Lie? Oh, come on. You're missing out if you haven't played. It's just basic. Everybody in the room gets to kind of write down three things about themselves. Only one of them is not true, right? And it's a way to kind of know obscure facts about somebody, but also try to figure out what what the lie is. Um, What I realized as a pastor early on is I'm really good at lying. It's not a good thing for the resume, but it's, hey, it's, it's what I'm good at. So I'll give you my three. You can kind of try to figure it out. Maybe you can, maybe you have your own later and you play amongst yourselves. Once I drove a car off a 30-foot cliff. True or false? I don't know. Once I drank coffee that was pooped out by a monkey in Bali. And once I went skydiving. What's the truth? What's the lie? Well, the, the lie of all of that is I've never gone skydiving. And it tastes like Maxwell House, by the way. <laughs> it was really expensive, but it, it's like diner coffee, right? Here's the thing. Paul was really concerned because there were some lies that were coming into the church, and, and the verses we're going through are the meat of Colossians. So the next 15 verses are thick. And I really encourage you when you go home this week, just spend some time going through them because, uh, man, the verses about 10 verses earlier talking about who Jesus was were thick, right? Now, these 15 verses, they're thick. They're academic, right? They're really hard to understand. But Paul's really concerned that if a lie comes in, it changes the church, changes the nature of the church. The church acts different. 
becomes different. The emphasis is different. And we, we understand that the lies that he's going to emphasize right now, even though that they were, you know, some 2,000 years ago that little church in, in, in Turkey dealt with, man, we still deal with it today too. So they are, they are old lies. That today we have new names for them, and we'll be talking about the names for them as well in, in modern lingo. But Paul's answer of how to deal with all of the lies is to keep our eyes on Jesus. He tries to make it really simple. Just keep your eyes on Jesus. And we know historically the church has dealt with problems with lies, right, that have kind of crept in and we think that they're really important and really valuable, like probably the biggest one that we kind of talk about amongst, you know, church historians is how in the world did the church in Germany endorse the Nazi party? Right? You guys know that happened, right? And thank God there were individuals like Dietrich Bonhoeffer that stood up and said, no, like, no. Well, how does that happen? How do you get from being this, this great, amazing church to a place where you're endorsing that? Well, a lie had crept in, right? And so we have to really be careful, and according to Paul's passages here, to keep our eyes on Jesus. The thinking that had crept in to that church and still kind of this universal umbrella is Gnosticism. Gnosticism, it's kind of based on this idea of knowledge, uh, two things were kind of pre- preeminent in, in the church there. First, Gnostics believe that special information is given to only some people, right? That certain people get special words, and, and those are more important than anybody else. And because you've heard them, you're more important than other people, right? And so Gnosticism became a big part of the early church. Also, they believe that matter is evil. All matter is evil. This is evil. You know, this is evil. That's evil, right? But ultimately, the body is evil. And that became a real struggle because then people started, you know, adversely dealing with flesh, saying, when I struggle with my sin, obviously it's because of my body. And then they tried to do everything they can to hold the body down, right? Out of all of this Gnostic umbrella, we see Paul talking about four areas that have some modern lingo to them now. Paul deals with humanism, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. Those are, those are uh, really words that have become a part of philosophy, a part of modern-day thinking, but they were a part of the early church. So let's just jump in. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Human tradition, deceptive philosophy, somebody was trying to keep them captive. Now, when you say captive, it's not a physical captivity. It's mental. It's following a a thought of teaching that kind of captures your mind and makes you walk away from being Jesus as being preemptive and focusing on other things. And this, by its very definition, is humanism. That somehow, if I can think things through enough, humanism, by definition, is that our logic can fix everything. That if we sit down and talk long enough, and through our logic and our smart and our education, we're going to fix everything. It also comes that modern is better than old. Well, I can tell you not all modern things are better than things of the past. Right? 
Humanism believes that, man, uh, we can figure it out if we work hard enough. But there's a problem with the idea of humanism. And that is that humanity is not good. We're sinful. We make mistakes. We're selfish people, right? So you can't come in to try to fix a system with broken pieces. So Paul says, be careful of those who are coming with hollow and deceptive philosophy. Hollow and deceptive philosophy. I don't know about you, uh, but through my educational seasons, I've taken a handful of philosophy classes, and I, I like it for kicks and giggles, right? I like reading philosophy. But sometimes if you ask the wrong question, well, I'll say this differently, if you ask the wrong question, you're always going to get the wrong answer. Often philosophy just draws us down a road that says, man, if I can just think about it and figure it out, and I'll come to an answer. And, and let me tell you, what comes with philosophy is a great deal of arrogance. The arrogance that says, I will look hard enough and I'll figure it out before anybody else. Nobody else has really figured this out. I'll figure it out. Right? And with that comes the human tradition of Secular humanism, that's one that's really big in philosophy right now, which basically says, the world revolves around me. I get to determine truth, right? Oh, that might be your truth, but it's not my truth. Paul says, be careful about this hollow and deceptive philosophy that depends upon human tradition and human thought and human logic. Now, I don't know if you know this about me, I'm really smart. Here's the thing. I think that a lot of us have that deep inside of us. We sense, you know, I don't like this, I like this, and so my perceptions are right, and therefore I'm going to go with what I got. Right? At the heart of it all, it's a, it's a level of arrogance that just simply says, I determine truth. That's secular humanism. I got this figured out. Nobody else has this figured out. And Paul's saying, be careful because it depends on all this logical thought rather than depending on Jesus. Because at the end of it all, what it means to be a follower of Jesus is I need Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I've read some things in the Bible that's hard to read. I've read, read some things from the Bible and I'm just going to admit it now, quietly in my own reading of this, I really wish it didn't say what it says. You're like, I'm not going to this church anymore. In my flesh, I think, oh, we, man, he could have done better than that. He could have done a little different, right? But I'm not God. I'm not God. It's not for me to choose. And the more that I spend time with those struggles of those ideas, the more I spend time with God struggling through what it says, the more I'm like, oh, I see what you're trying to do, Lord. As I read the fullness of Scripture, I see what this was really meant to be. First time I read it, I'm like, ooh. The more I time with, spend time with the Word, the more I spend time with the Lord, it makes sense to me. I heard someone say recently, if you don't disagree with God, you may be worshiping yourself. Because if, if everything is just okay, then it could be that it's only based upon what you think. The reality is sometimes God asks us to do things we don't want to do, right? At the end of the day, we trust him. 
So we have to be careful of the secular humanism that says, I can figure it out, I'm logical, I am the end of truth. It comes from me. And Paul goes on, verses 9 and 10. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. If you want to know what God looks like, we look at Jesus. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Now, I don't do this very very much. It's, it's called interactive communication with the congregation. Sometimes I want to emphasize a word. I don't usually do this, but let's do this. I think this word is really important, this fullness. So say it after me. Say fullness. fullness. Say it again. Fullness. It's an important word in all of this. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Jesus has given us, as his children, everything we need. Does that mean everything's easy? Nope. But in Jesus is everything we need. And then he goes on and kind of emphasizes it. He is the head over every power and authority. So if he's given us everything we need and he's the head over every power and authority, guess what? We don't have to worry about every power and authority because he's got it under control. All these spiritual things that are happening in the world, he's given us everything we need to live and to flourish. Jesus has everything we need. We traveled a ton. We talk about that once in a while, back and forth to Ukraine, living there. And especially when the kids were, were young, we have, we have magical suitcases that just never broke. They're Jan Sports. They're amazing, right? And we open them up, and for a week, we put everything in there. And then you put it in, and like 14 hours beforehand, we get in a car and drive to the airport because I'm meticulous, right? We get there early. And inevitably, we're like halfway there, and somebody says, oh, did we forget this? You know what I'm talking about. We always forgot something. We did lose a passport one time that slid underneath the, the, the seat of the car, which was infuriating. You ever sense like you're missing something? You look at other people and you say, spiritually, they've got it, and I feel like I'm missing something. I think that's more our struggle in our humanity than the reality. Because in Christ is the fullness of all that we need. He's given us everything we need. John 14, 6, a very important passage when we talk about access to God, but a very important passage to our truths of living. And that is, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I've got it all. I'm the fullness, so keep your eyes on me. Now, we are Trinitarian. We understand that we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But in order for us to, to understand the Father and to experience the Spirit, we get to see it through the practice of Jesus. And Jesus gives the practice of how to live our lives. Let me give you three observations because in a moment we're going to be talking about the supernatural, mysticism. And we've been talking about secular humanism, but... Let me give you three observations for building God, godly practices for our lives. And this is biblical models. Remember, the Bible is our source for faith and for practice. The three questions are, one, did Jesus teach it? We're talking about how to live our lives. First, did Jesus teach about it? All right, if he did teach about it, then the question is, did the early church practice it? And if the early church practiced it, then the question is, did the epistles or the letters at the end of the book reinforce it? 
right? And if we have those, then we can say, okay, the whole of Scripture finds application on how to live our lives, so I can do that. What is a struggle is sometimes we try to figure out how to live our lives, we pull one Scripture out, right? And we apply it to everything in our lives, and it kind of becomes the, the sole Scripture. But as we look at how to, how to build godly practices for our lives, Scripture says, did Jesus teach it? Did the early church practice it? And did the epistles reinforce it? Verses 11, 14. Let's keep moving. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised in Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the work in the working of God who raised him from the dead. We use that scripture often in water baptism. Water baptism is like we are being we die with Christ and we come alive in him. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. All right, let's do that again. Let's use the word all. Say the word all for me. It's an important word. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. I love that it says he's canceled out our indebtedness to that law. Now, we talk about you know, biblical concepts of circumcision which if you really sat down and talked about it, it's really an awkward thing to talk about, right? But in the Old Testament, circumcision was utilized to set the the people of, of, of Israel apart, to set the Jews apart, and to recognize they are set apart unto God. Now we are set apart in our hearts. We are circumcised in our hearts, not don't need to in our body, and we are made new in Christ, and he has covered all of our indebtedness. There's no, here's the word, legalism. There's no sense of having to do something in order to God, get God's pleasure, right? God loves you for who you are, no matter how, how much you struggle with certain things. God makes us holy because of what Christ has done on the, on the cross. Legalism is a strict adherence to a code of conduct. And in this context, it is the strict adherence that makes us think God loves us more or that we are better than others, Right? Christ has made us holy. That doesn't mean we don't struggle. But even if we do struggle about doing right and wrong, he still makes us holy. It's not about what we can do on the outside. It's what Christ has done on the inside. If you want to read more about what Christ has done in circumcision uh, of the heart rather than of the body, Acts 15 is just a really powerful passage on this focus away from having to legalistic do things to please God. God loves you because he loves you. Romans 3.20. Therefore, no one is declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. In other words, being good or not following everything or following everything. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sins. The, The law came so we can understand that we can't keep it. Does that make sense? The law came, God made rules in place so we would understand that we fail them so we understand that we need Jesus. That seems like a lot of work, but it's the most practical way of knowing I need help, right? So the law is still there to say, hey, I can't follow it, I need grace. But the law is also there to say, this is how you flourish. 
this is how you flourish. I don't want you to do these things because they hurt you. And even though you struggle with them, I want you to be flourishing in this life. Verse 15, let's keep moving as we're kind of jogging along with the lawnmower. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He's disarmed all the powers and authorities. So all the evil ones that would come against us, all the demonic, I often have questions of the demonic. I I do really believe and recognize there are demonic things at work in our world, but Scripture says something really powerful in this verse, that what Jesus did is he disarmed. Okay, let's do that word again, disarmed. Disarmed. They have no power against us when Jesus is in our life. All those powers and authorities have no power against us. They are completely disarmed against us. People say, well, what about the demons in my life? I said, are you following Jesus? I said, well, yeah. Well, then this might just be a hard life. Because in this passage, we see that, that they are disarmed for the church of Jesus Christ. That we can find freedom in here. So the struggle with humanism, that it's all about me. The struggle with legalism, that i got to keep the rules. Now we move into the struggle with mysticism. Let's go with verse 16 through 19. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. That's that legalism part, right? Or with regard to religious festivals, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are shadows of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Jesus. So all these amazing festivals and and uh, focuses in the Old Testament and postures of what you should eat or drink were all meant to focus that generations, those generations of the Old Testament, on Jesus. There's a Messiah coming. But he's saying all those things that were a shadow are now found in reality in Jesus. So we want to go back to, wow, wasn't that really cool in the Old Testament when they practiced those things? And we think, yeah, that was really cool, but the reality of it is found in Jesus. It's cool to see the shadows. Now we get to see him face to face, the reality of him. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. That idea of false humility is there are often individuals who come across to the church like they're very humble, but really it's all about them. Right? It's all about them. So do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. So what was happening is there were individuals who were having these mystical experiences that were really exciting. And and they started worshiping the experience, right? And especially we saw in in Gnostic experience in that time, a, a real worship of angels. Angelic theology became a big part of creation, became a big part of sanctification, of even surviving in this world. We need help with angels, right? And, and we do see a, a lot of theology on angels, 
in Scripture. But at the end of the day, that as well is a shadow of Jesus. Jesus is fully here for us. I'm glad there's some, maybe there's some angels right here helping me. That's wonderful. Maybe like when I'm driving, praise God, I need it, right? I think that's great. I don't know fully about that, nor does Scripture really unpack that a ton. It gives us glimpses of angelic powers in the world, but what is reality is Jesus. Yeah, Jesus in here. And so he's like, be careful of those who, who are talking a ton about uh, angels and spiritual things and meditation, mysticism, makes spirituality all about the experience. But Scripture says, no, it needs to be about Jesus. But we are a church that believes in experiences, aren't we? I really truly believe that we can experience Jesus through his Holy Spirit on a regular basis. In fact, Paul, the guy who writes this letter that says, be careful about worshiping the experience, in 1 Corinthians talks about experiences, the gifts of the Spirit, right? He talks about people experiencing supernatural things in their lives. But the problem is we can't worship the supernatural thing. We worship Jesus, right? So literally, like, right after worship, I looked at Josh Larson, and I said, I'm gonna, I need your help. And he said, okay. And that was it, but he has no idea what to do. So, Josh, come on up here. Just to, just to make him feel uncomfortable. So, so, have you ever been, like, with a spouse or a friend or something, you want to get their attention, so often what you do is you kind of nudge them and you point, right? The whole idea was, hey, look at that. Right? You give them the nudge, you give them the point, right? Say, hey, look at that. So often what's happening with the nudge, spiritually, the supernatural experience is not about God has touched me. It's about what he's pointing to, and that's Jesus. Does that make sense? So often the supernatural that we experience, maybe we experience it in a dream, maybe we experience it in a service, or maybe uh, we read something in Scripture that's exactly the moment, right? The, the, the passage that we need. Have you ever had somebody come to you and say, the Lord has spoken to my heart about something, and he wants me to tell you, and it's exactly what you needed to hear? That's not about the experience. It's about Jesus. Now, once in a while, God doesn't do this. He does this. <laughs> I knew you could take it. <laughs> right? There are moments in our lives when, when God is trying to shock us in such a way, and his purpose is not for us to be affected by the experience of the nudge or the hit. It is so that we can focus on Jesus. Oh, do you remember that one time when I got hit in the ribs really hard? It was, it was right here. Oh, it was a great feeling. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. <laughs> Didn't he do great? Come on, let's go. Let's go. You never know what you're going to get when you come to church. The experiences that we see in the New Testament, these supernatural things that were constantly happening. Let me, t- let me tell you, and this, this may even be controversial. I'm, I'm sorry, but it's a gift of the Spirit. But our healings in this life are not just about us feeling better. They're about the glory of Jesus. Like, I, I'm all for feeling better. 
I'm all for praying that the disease goes away, but it's not about, it's all temporary anyhow, right? It's not about the disease going away. It's about all of this stuff that we're experiencing in this world, supernaturally and practically in the word of God. It's all for us to focus on Jesus, not on the experience. I love the experience. I love the feel goods. They're great. But at the end, it's about him. Even so much as what's going on in here, right? We need to focus on him. Uh, Part of mysticism is about also emptying our brains and maybe somehow experiencing this experience that is beyond ourselves, even in our brain and in meditation. 2 Corinthians, another letter written by Paul says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Part of the the mystic process, and it's really become popular lately, is mindfulness. Uh, there's, some, there's parts of mindfulness that have really interest me. Uh, we, we practice some centering prayers in which we try to silence ourselves and just get alone with God. Um, but according to our passage here, Scripture is encouraging us to take captive of every thought, not to empty our minds, but to focus our minds. In fact, Scripture really encourages us many different passages. Joshua 1, 8 is one of them. Uh, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. Right? So I encourage you, when there's times when you're seeking the experience of God, even within a meditative experience, it's not the emptying of a mind, right? It is focusing the mind. It's focusing the mind, even on, even on a single phrase that is biblical, even on a single passage that is biblical. Why? Because even within our meditation, within our supernatural experience, within our prayer life, it still is all pointing to Jesus not pointing to me and my experience or even how I feel. It's pointing to Jesus because verse 17 makes it very clear. These are shadow of, shadows of the things that were to come. The reality, however, of all of this is found in Jesus. It's found in Christ. Last three verses, and we're getting there. So we've talked a little bit about, we've talked about humanism. We've talked a little bit about legalism. We've talked about mysticism. Uh, that he's dealing with, finally, asceticism. That's a, that's a mouthful. Verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to this world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle this, or do not taste this, and do not touch that. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. Don't eat this, don't eat that, do this, don't do that. They have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of body. But they lack any value in restraining spiritual, sensual indulgences. Right? This idea that, man, if somehow I can just control my habits... Stop eating this and stop doing this. Spiritually, I'm going to be different. 
Right? That's asceticism, and it was really brought into some extremes in the Dark Ages. So like from like 500 to 1500 in the church, that got to be a big thing, where people even started cutting their bodies, carrying big weights in order to try to keep the flesh down so that maybe they would stop sinning. That don't work. It's not there, right? It, it, there's no help done by saying, I'm going to stop doing this, or I'm going to keep my flesh in place. Listen, the reality of why we say no to certain things and yes to other things, according to what Scripture says, the reason why we come in line with God's desire for our life is because we love him. Not because we need to earn his favor or his his love back to us. We follow his commands because we love him. Within asceticism even today, which is really popular right now, maybe it pops up on your feed, maybe it pops up on your YouTube channel. I know it pops up on ours is stoicism. It's a huge thing within, uh, within the world today, this idea that I can change my habits, I can keep my body in control, and therefore I'll be better because I control myself a little bit better, and where it's really good to have some controls in our lives, and I'm even drawn it's stoicism because it, again, comes through the idea that my logic and my understanding and my self-control is going to change everything. The reality is something that you already know is that your self-control is not enough. None of us are ever going to be perfect by our standards of doing everything right. That's why Jesus came. That's why grace is available. We still try to follow him and, and do what he desires in our lives because we love him. But ultimately, asceticism and trying to control our bodies, it's not enough. We have to trust that his grace is enough. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. We're going to end with a song of worship. The, the, Paul, the book that Paul is writing, this letter that was now is the book of the Bible, he's really concerned that little lies were coming in and were getting them off focus. Now, I probably could have spent an entire sermon off of just each, each of these three or four verses. We'd be doing Colossians until 2027, right? So, so yes, I went through it. Please read these, these 15 verses. Go a little bit deeper because what it's saying is, Don't take your eyes off Jesus. Jesus came to this earth so that we would be able to see in flesh and blood God. Practical. What makes sense. And in Jesus Christ, we put our hope today. What happens for me, I don't know if it happens for you, When I get my eyes off of Jesus, it usually shows itself in the way of worry. Usually, I worry about my nation and my family. I worry about my health or my friends or I worry about the church. And and what God is telling us today in all of our trying to figure out what it means to, to practically live in this world, practically be a follower of Jesus, is just keep our eyes on him. Keep an eye on his teaching. Keep an eye on his ways. There's a, an old song. I think I've quoted it in the past, but it, 
it's had some experience in my life that's been important. And, and I think it's applicable for us today. I'm going to read the first verse, and I'm going to read the chorus for us. This is poetic in nature. Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. The chorus some of you might recognize. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. My hope today, when we come together, my hope today when we sit out in the, in the cafe and drink coffee, my hope today as people come in, my hope today as we interact uh, during the week, my observation of a funeral just a couple days ago is that in those moments, God is nudging us. Look at Jesus. Eyes off yourself. Take eyes off your trouble. Take eyes off your question. All your philosophy and all your fixing of this world. Keep your eyes on Jesus. My hope today is that as we reflect upon these passages, my hope today as we sing this song in just a moment, that we would turn our eyes off of this world. Turn our eyes on Jesus. Heavenly Father, as we sing together in just a moment, Help us to recommit in these moments our lives to you. And though there are a lot of things that distract us or a lot of things we're trying to figure out, Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to see you, Lord, and that you've done it all for us. That we would just put our hope in you, have faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' name.